My name is Dan. I'm uh, one of the leaders here at Grace Fellowship, and it is my great privilege to open Job chapter 27 with you today, which is on page 278 in your church Bibles. Did you ever regret signing up to do something? You know, your signature is already on it, and maybe you're even there, and you realize partway through, I shouldn't have done this. Well, it was 2002 for me. I was a uh, freshman in college, and uh, I decided to take an honors-level American history class. I was uh, coming out of being an art major, so I, I didn't belong in there. Uh, it was one of those classes where you work as hard as possible, and at the end of the semester, you take that B-, and that's a badge of honor. And uh, to make it actually more difficult, the semester was actually right at the start of the Iraq War. So tensions were pretty high in class. Everybody was looking to take their history books and sort of apply what they're learning. And, and uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a pretty tricky class. And uh, one of the concepts that we discussed is the title of your outline, which is Manifest Destiny. I'm not sure if anybody here knows what that means. It is the, uh, the term itself means this, the manifestation of or the incarnation of destiny. It was applied to America, basically said it's our destiny. It's, we're, we're the last great hope for the world. It's our destiny to be this shining light. There were some noble attachments to it. And uh, my, my point here is not to debate whether or not it was a legitimate term. My point is that Terms like that can be twisted to serve other agendas. And here's how, here's how Manifest Destiny was sort of marketed to your average, somewhat dense churchgoer. Here's how it was marketed. It is our God-given destiny to take over the world. So it applies that to God's will. And... Uh, of course, there was a time when God commanded conquest by force. That was portions of the Old Testament. Those days are long over. So the religious version of that, that actually summarizes a large part of what we've read here in the book of Job so far. Conquest by force. God-given conquest by force, we might say. Manifest destiny, or this religious version, is a perfect reflection of the hearts of Job's friends. Job, if you remember, has lost everything, and now his friends come to comfort him, and they end up in this long, long debate about the nature of God's will. And they have been mercilessly crushing Job, saying that he has earned all these terrible things that have happened to him all while believing firmly that God is on their side. They think they're the good guys. Except their destiny to be victorious over Job doesn't come true. They are now silent while Job stands victorious. He is convinced that God is good and merciful and there is hope in him and their last words are, mankind has no hope. So what does Job do now that he has the floor? What would you do if you had the floor over your enemies? Well, Job's going to do two surprising things here in chapter 27. First, he's going to make a pledge to continue his innocent suffering. 
That's point one on your outline. And then Job is going to warn his friends that their destruction is coming, but he will never take revenge on them. That's point two. And from there, we're going to make a significant connection to the gospel. So we're in Job chapter 27, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we're going to talk about it for a bit, and then we'll move on. So the first six verses of Job chapter 27. And again, Job took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it for me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity." I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So your first point is sufferers must be innocent. And I'm going to explain that phrase a little bit later. It might cause you to scratch your head a bit. First, I want to set the table and explain why Job is choosing the path that he's choosing. The path of honoring God with his last breath, as he says in verse 3, even though we've already established, this offers him zero earthly incentive. He's not going to get any of his stuff back for making this vow. Why does he do that? Well, I think in some ways because there's truth in sarcasm. A few chapters ago, When Bildad said his last words, he had just sputtered out the phrase, man has no hope before God. That was his conclusion. And answering Bildad, Job said in chapter 26, verse 4, whose breath has come out of you? Now, he was being sarcastic, as in, where did you get such helpful words, Bildad? That's really helping me out. Thanks for that. He was being sarcastic, but think about the phrase for a moment. Who actually gave Bildad his breath? God did. Bildad's ability to say that man has no hope actually proves that there is hope. And all I mean by that is this. Our breath is a gift from God, right? We don't earn it. He gives it to us. If there were really no hope, we would not be breathing, and Bildad would not have been breathing. In other words, God gave Bildad the gift of breath, and Bildad has used his gift very poorly. But Job's conclusion that mankind has hope actually propels him in a different way than Bildad. Job's conclusion propels him, mankind having hope, propels him forward towards God, toward obedience, not just there's no hope. He's actually, no, I'm going to serve God. That's why he presses in with this vow, because Job loves God, and Job sees hope in God. I will not lie, he says in verse 4. His, his friends have lied. In fact, in verse 5, he says right to them, Far be it for me 
Far be it from me to say that you, Bildad, you, Eliphaz, you, Zophar, are right. In other words, Job says, I'm going to obey God, and one way I'm going to obey God is by calling you the liars that you are. Now, Job is bold here. He is not proud because this can look bold. Some have actually misattributed this chapter to Eliphaz, to Zophar, to anybody but Job because he sounds downright mean here. But he is not proud. He is bold. And Job actually wants to continue this. How long does he want to continue it? In verse 5, he says, Until I die, I will not put my integrity away. Even to his last breath, long-suffering Job vows to use his breath from God to hold fast to God. And verse 6, My heart does not reproach me, he says. Job has a clear conscience about it. He vows to remain innocent, even though he's still suffering physically, And he's still vexed mentally as to why God is not giving him an audience. He keeps saying, God, I want want you to show up so I can plead my case before you. Silence. But Job still presses in with this vow. Now, to further help you understand why Job is choosing this path, let me now pause and go back and explain that section title. More specifically, let me clarify what I mean by the word suffering. Because we often use that phrase suffering to talk about a level of pain, to measure a level of pain, right? That person's suffering. They're in great pain. This is not a stubbed toe. This is great pain. Job has great pain, right? Nobody's arguing that. But the classic definition of suffering goes beyond that. It's not as much about the level of pain so much as it's an explanation of why the pain is happening. The classic definition of suffering is bearing pain in submission, as in martyrdom. Job is suffering, not just because he's experienced a lot of pain, he's a martyr for the great cause of living for God. And so suffering is not just something that's happening to him. Suffering is his identity. God is great, and Job just looks at who God is. He said in the last chapter how magnificent God is. Job is identifying that he's simply a piece of clay serving the potter that made him. He is very small, and God is very big. And so... Obedience is mandatory. Innocence is mandatory. You can't just pick how you want to respond to it. And that's why sufferers must be innocent. Because if you're breaking God's law, if you're living however you want, as Zophar, Eliphaz, and all the others are living, any punishment that God gives you is justified. Right? It's not suffering anymore if you're breaking the law. It's justice. Here's an example. Say you're driving down the highway and you see the red and blue lights flashing behind you. 
Did I just describe yesterday for anyone? No? Not me. Say that happens, and you look ahead and you realize one of your headlights is out. And then you look down at your speedometer, and it says 83. You are not about to suffer in the classic sense. You are about to get justice, right? Now, say you're driving along, and you see the same flashing lights, but this time, you're not doing anything illegal. You're doing nothing illegal. Rather, it becomes clear that you've been pulled over perhaps because of your skin color or because of the type of car that you drive. I actually read somewhere that police officers are more likely to pull you over if you have a red car. It's for the same reason that cereal boxes are red in the grocery store. Kids notice them. They are bright red. So your application is don't buy a red car. But my point is, that's suffering. Job is an example of this. He has suffered innocently under the hand of God. He has endured great pain and great loss and has no promise to get anything back. Yet Job is so sold out to God that he vows to continue suffering. Though his profit on earth will probably not be one penny. But he knows vindication will come in the next life. His hope is not here. But guess what? There's a flip side if you follow that logic for his enemies. And we're going to talk about that by what causes him to say what he says next. It's your second point. God must exact justice. Let me read uh, the remainder of the chapter. Job says in verse 7, Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what's the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? No, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him in the pestilence, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from his power in headlong flight. It claps his hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Job is really not being nice here. He sounds downright angry. I mean, could you imagine the temptation? His friends are finally silent again after verses and verses and chapters and chapters of not being quiet. They finally are. 
Job could go manifest destiny right here, couldn't he? I mean, it almost sounds like he is. But if you read his words closely, there's a wisdom that isn't found in his friends. His words are sharp and true, but there's actually hope. It's buried way underneath, and we're going to get to it. I'm going to explain the sharp truth first, and then the hope. Okay, here's the sharp truth. Job is not taking personal vengeance on his friends. He's not just squishing them as they did to him. But this is actually worse. He says, let my enemy be as the wicked in verse 7. He's talking about people like his three friends. Job explains the reality of what God will do to them. Verse after verse is about what God will do. That's why it's so much worse than anything they could have said. Look at verses 8 through 10. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? In other words, God's judgment is final. And Job is pledging obedience. Like I said, he wants to progress towards God. Job's friends, on the other hand, what have they done? Remember, mankind has no hope. That's their summation. So they, for all intents and purposes, while Job is moving towards God, they're regressing away from God. Or, you know, or maybe they're just stagnant. I don't think it really matters. Either way, Job is filled with hope, and his friends are hopeless. Now, there's a huge contrast between them already. There's a huge contrast. But Job's about to show that the contrast is even greater when it comes to eternity, when it comes to their judgment. Job makes a decree in verse 13. Here's what God is going to do to you, my enemies. And then Job gives this big, long list of judgments that I just read. And it's for people like Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. But here's the crazy part. A lot of these judgments are actually judgments that they had pronounced on Job earlier. And so here Job gives their own words back to them. But the intensity is dialed up to about 11. He gives each one of them a taste of their own poison, basically. But it's actually worse than anything they gave to him. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down through that list of judgments that Job gave... And then I'm going to pick out one of the judgments that each of his friends had given, and then I'm going to let Job answer them very specifically. Verse 14, Job says this, The descendants of the wicked are multiplied for the sword. Does that sound familiar? Probably not, because there were so many chapters and verses prior to this one. That's why I'm here. Bildad said something like this back to Job back in chapter 8. Bildad said this to Job, If your children have sinned against him, Job, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. In other words, Bildad said to Job back in chapter 8, Job, your children are dead because of their sin. And that, of course, was not true. So here in chapter 27, when Job says, the descendants of the wicked are multiplied for the sword, Job is saying this back to Bildad. Yeah, I don't have descendants anymore. 
and you might have hundreds of them. And they will all be wicked like you. And then God is going to destroy them. Who lost that battle? Let's do another one. In verses 16 and 17, Job says, Though the wicked heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he might pile it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. Does that sound familiar? Well, Zophar said something like this to Job back in chapter 20. He said, He, the wicked person, Job, swallows down riches, vomits them back up again. God casts them out of his belly. In other words, Zophar said to Job, You gathered all these riches, and you can't keep them. God cast them out, which also wasn't really true. So here in chapter 27, when Job says, The wicked might pile up riches, but the righteous will divide them, Job is saying back to Zophar, Yeah, I might die broke. And you and your descendants might accumulate silver like people acquire dirt in their house. And if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. You might accumulate silver like that, but when you die, God's going to give it to all the innocent people. Who lost that battle? One more. Job says this in verse 27. Terrors overtake the wicked like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Does that sound familiar? In Job chapter 22, verses 9 through 11... Eliphaz said to Job, You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. And again, those accusations were completely made up. Here's what's so striking about how Job is answering Eliphaz here in chapter 27. Whereas Eliphaz was referring to a natural disaster, like a natural whirlwind, the whirlwind that Job is describing here in chapter 27 is not a natural disaster. In some translations, this is a nickname for God. Later, when God appears to Job at the end of the book, it is in a whirlwind. That's how God is actually equated to In other words, Job is saying to Eliphaz, I might die in a flood, but God himself is going to come and carry you away. These are harsh words that Job is saying to his friends, and they're not nice. And to be honest, they're they're not wrong. Sometimes we need stuff like this, don't we? You ever hear your friends say, Hey, we need to talk. And that not just kind of grows in your stomach. You know what I'm talking about? The truth can hurt. But it's necessary, and like I said earlier, Job is speaking it in obedience. So let's sum it up real quick. 
Job is innocent of all the hardship of his life, and his friends are wicked. Yet Job does not exact justice on his friends who have harmed him greatly because he knows that that job belongs exclusively to God. You know, I'm innocent. I'm just this little piece of clay. God's the one who's going to exact vengeance on his enemies. And so Job doesn't exact justice on his friends who have harmed him greatly because he knows it belongs to God. So here's the question. If that's true, why do so many people love taking God's job so much? Why do so many people love taking vengeance? Why does taking vengeance feel so good? And I don't mean things like, I don't mean justice like fighting sex trafficking or showing your children when they are wrong. I don't mean that. I mean vengeance. I mean judgment on their souls. I mean as in when someone breaks God's law, but you want to personally make them pay. That's what I'm talking about. This is so common that I would argue we often don't even see it when it happens. Here are some examples. Think of the last time somebody blamed you for something that you didn't do. This can be anything from public malicious slander they just you know you get home and somebody says you didn't do the dishes and you're like yeah I did anything in that gamut someone falsely accuses you and instead of praying for them instead of seeking reconciliation and seeking peace you slander them right back your guard goes up and wham counterattack. or you just hold a grudge Married couples, say your spouse embarrasses you in public. Has that ever happened? It will, give it time. <laughs> um, maybe you take a shot right back at them. You ever do that? Just kind of take a little jab right back at them. Or maybe you wait till you get home and then you explode. You know, it's, that's a nice version of doing it. Parents, maybe your kids break the rules and you point that out and you discipline them. Maybe you do it out of anger. Or maybe you don't hit them, but maybe you yell at them. Some would actually say that it hurts worse. Kids? Kids, what happens when someone takes your toy? What do you feel like doing? That was a good squint. (laughs) One of the girls gave me a squint. (laughs) You want to push them and you want to take it right back, don't you? When we do those things, we are exacting judgment. We're taking God's job and we're doing a poor job of it while neglecting our job, which is to obey God even if it brings suffering and allow Him the final word. Why? Because judgment belongs to Him. Because we're not God. So why do we exact justice when Job ran from it? Because Job is Job is innocent. Job is the kind of guy that you and I would probably love to be like. So, why do we exact justice when Job ran from it? Look at your outline. I think we mess up the second point because we've messed up the first one. I think we exact justice because we think we're innocent like Job 
but we're actually wicked like his friends. Cosmically, here's what I'm saying. Cosmically, we are not sufferers. Cosmically, we're guilty before God. So we look again with that information, and let's look again at verse 13. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed. This inheritance isn't just for Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad. This inheritance is for us. This is what it ends like for anybody who is guilty before God. Anyone. What's our hope? How can we find hope if that's the reality? Well, what if God were to take the portion of the wicked man? Right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He can take away. What if he were to take the heritage decreed against the wicked? In other words, what if God took our destiny on himself in order to change it? How would that be possible? Point three. Jesus must die. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jesus was perfectly innocent. Unlike Job... Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice during his upbringing in life because he never sinned. He never needed to appease God. But mankind had fallen so far that they couldn't come back, and so he took the sin and took the full portion of the death sentence. And here's the thing. Here's where it gets scary. Just like point two. He never took vengeance on his enemies. In fact, he died for them. He cried out for God to have mercy on them while they mocked him on the cross. He never took vengeance on his enemies. He bore the brunt. And so, Job was a nice example of suffering, But Jesus is the perfect example of suffering. It's the perfect perfect response to the magnificence of the God that we learned about in the last chapter. It's full obedience, no judgment, taking it all on himself. He had to die because God just couldn't let our sins slide. If he did that, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. And so God, we might say, had a bit of a manifest destiny. In order to stop our one-way destination to hell, God, being perfect, was made manifest in the form of Jesus, who was then able to change our destiny. And that's what makes the gospel so much better than anything else. And it makes it so much different than that religious version of manifest destiny I gave you at the beginning. Because the gospel does not spread by force. You do not share Jesus by destroying people, by tearing them down. The gospel spreads by people dying. 
It spreads by people laying down their lives just like Jesus. What does that look like on a daily basis? Because not everybody here statistically is going to end up as a martyr. It's just probably not going to happen. Most of you will just die old. So, what does that mean for us? How do we apply that? What does that mean for our daily lives? Well, here's a few examples. Let's go back over that list I just read. Remember the first one? Somebody somebody falsely accuses you? What do you do? What can you do in Christ? How can you stand out? How can you be different from everybody else? You can pray for them and you can seek reconciliation. That is very un-American. You will stand out. That's what Jesus did. And here's the thing. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're not doing this on your own willpower. His spirit is in you and it's changing you so that you can do that. Will that person change? Will the relationship get reconciled? Maybe. Maybe not. The good thing is, that's not your job. And things are going to start falling apart when you make it your job. You're going to start compromising if you make that your job. Here's the thing. Suffering is not just gritting your teeth and doing the right thing. It is lovingly, continually forgiving people and patiently working with them. And this happens at great time and great personal expense. That's what suffering is. It's doing it day in and day out, not just forgiving your enemy one time, or not seven times as Jesus' as Jesus' disciples said, but 70 times seven. Forgiving them again and again and again, because that's what Jesus has done for you. So married couples, here's another example. Married couples, say your spouse embarrasses you in public. Say your friend, say your wife tells your friends that you snore. This is not an admission on my part, nor is it a condemnation of my wife. None of that happened. (laughs) Instead of like knocking her down or elevating yourself, you can, to the glory of God, you can take it. Just take it. Suffer quietly. Especially, I might add, if it is something that your spouse, spouse is not famous for, then talk to them in private. Pray for them. In fact, pray for them before you talk to them. That would probably be a very good idea. Will they change? Maybe. That's not your responsibility. Patiently work with them because God is patient with you. Parents, when your kids knowingly break the rules. I'm not talking about whoops. I'm talking about they look at you and they go right over the line. And you want to lash out, right? This is a hard one. (laughs) This is a hard one. Patiently work with them. Teach them again. Discipline them, yes, but not in anger. Pray with them. And you know what's funny? I have heard accounts of parents who do all the right things and their children still walk away. Somebody should cover that in a sermon or something. You can't change them. 
That might not happen. Not your responsibility. Pray, work, suffer. Kids, when someone takes your toy, you can forgive them. And guess what? You might not get the toy back. You might not. You might say, I forgive you. Can I have it back now? And you say, no. That might happen. It does not always end like when the kids shows. It really doesn't. You can't change them. But remember, and this is where I'm really looking to you parents, keep it up. Remember the patience of your mom and dad with you, children. God is like that. God is just like that. So if I were to sum up what all this looks like and what this feels like on a daily basis, to be honest, it feels like death, doesn't it? It should feel like death because you're killing the flesh. That's the phrase, you ever hear? Killing the flesh? You are being made more into the likeness of Jesus who suffered unbelievably every time you suffer. Every time you forgive your enemy, every time you train your children, every time you do the right thing and you don't get an earthly reward, you're becoming more like Jesus. So remember this. If it doesn't feel like death, you're not killing the flesh. If it doesn't hurt, you're probably not doing it right. (laughs) It is an unbelievable tension. It is an unbelievable tension. And so what's our hope as we're doing it? And even as we're doing it wrongly and then repenting and trying again, our hope is Jesus. Even as we're failing, our hope is Jesus. He had to die to save us. And so we celebrate that by giving him our lives. And another way we celebrate it is with what we're going to do right now with communion. That's essentially what communion is. It's a reminder of what Jesus did and how sufficient it is. It is just one way that we can fight that tension that I just described. How we can hold fast to the gospel. We are called to dive in and we're called to obey completely. To become more like Jesus. But every day we're reminded that our sin is tremendous. And that's why we don't just take communion once and then we're done. Could you imagine if you just took it once and you could never take it again? We need it regularly. We need that reminder. And so I would like to help us remember Jesus by taking communion this morning. Let me pray for us and then I'll give you a bit of instruction on what that's going to look like. Dear God, you call the sick and not the well to yourself. What you want is you want broken people. So often, Lord, we resemble Job's friends because we crush other people, often even in your name. And we do it thinking that we're doing the right thing, but we are far from you so often. Lord, that is why Jesus came because we couldn't get it right. Lord, we are not here because Job was a good man. We're here because Jesus was the perfect man and because he died. And more importantly than that, he was raised again. 
And Lord, that reminder every day helps us to know who you are. You are a forgiving God. We cannot fall too far away that you can't win us back. And so, Lord, I pray that anyone here who is struggling with sin would not try to cover it up with a smile, but that they would cry out and that they would embrace the good gift of communion, that you would strengthen them through it. And, Lord, if there's anyone here who thinks that they are good, anyone here who thinks that they're all right because they haven't committed any of the big sins, I pray that you would hold them in their seat and that they would not take communion, but they would wait, they would reflect with you, they would pray with others, and then repenting, then they would fully embrace the good gift of communion. Lord, help us, help us to do this to your glory, and I thank you so much for the good gift of Jesus. Amen.